to season two of Inside My Canoe Head, a podcast about individual emergency preparedness, living through a pandemic, reinventing yourself, and chasing adventure. My name is Jeff. Thanks for joining us today, and let's get to it. All right, welcome back to the 10th episode of the second season of Inside My Canoe Head. This week, we're going to be looking at preparedness beyond the first 72 hours. Most of the information that you see out there that you'll see from, say, FEMA, Public Safety Canada, the Red Cross, places like that, they're all talking about you need to be self-sufficient for the first 72 hours. Well, we've already discussed at length on this podcast in multiple episodes that really you can stand outside in the pouring rain and you'd be perfectly fine. Maybe a little uncomfortable, a little wet. You certainly don't need food for the first 72 hours, and you can largely drink puddle water or find water standing around somewhere. So we know for the first 72 hours, surviving that is is an absolute zero-sum game. It is it's impossible to fail at that, pretty much, based on just whatever limited things you have around you, and especially the last episode when we talked about Preparedness is cheap and simple. It really is. When you're looking at the basic animalistic level of requirements for the human animal, it's it's really nothing to have everything you need to be prepared. But I think we want to do a little bit better than that. A recent blog that I put out on my blog, if you've never seen it, it's on my uh, website, www.preparednesslabs.ca. I'm talking about why is this important? And people jumping on the bandwagon of the 72 hours gives you a bit of a sense of false security in that within 72 hours, you know, the failed systems are going to come back online. And for the most part, they largely will. We can see throughout history and we'll go through a couple of examples here today, but really most systems are going to bounce back within the first 72 hours. But there is that possibility of failure of systems to rebound. So like I said, the messaging out there is, you know, for short-term period, short-term period events, it's, it's normal. And for the most part, most of the disruptions you're going to face are of a localized nature, which means efforts and resources from your municipality or from your provincial state government can be concentrated. So if you have a tornado go through a certain strip of land or you have an earthquake hit a certain developed area, but the rest of the general region is okay, then you have the ability for all of the resources in that region to be concentrated on the one event to provide help and assistance to everyone that needs it. Now, this is a, you know, they also have situations where we call them mutual assistance agreements that exist from neighboring communities, neighboring counties, or neighboring provinces, where you have these pre-existing agreements that when an event hits one area but not another, the resources not only can from the local region can be brought together, but you can also see regions come from around. But you also have to understand there are limits to local responders. When you look at the police department, you have to remember that the police department can't just press a button and call in all available officers. Because let's be frank, the the emergency is probably going to last past 12 hours. They're going to run out of gas. They're going to need time off. And that would mean assuming that there would be another agency that's available to come in and provide the backup assistance. And that's not always going to be the case. So there is a limit to the number of police available. But as well, you have to remember within an emergency, the police department have a specific requirement to enforce law 
and order and security so they can't be on their hands and knees digging through rubble en masse because they have larger and greater responsibilities. The fire department, the same way. You can call in the next shift early if you want to, but you have to remember that that shift eventually is going to have to sleep and you only have a finite number of suppression apparatuses, so fire trucks, in a given area to deal with a major calamity. So there are limitations to those. And I've said before on this blog, I live in the city of Ottawa, and we've ran out of ambulances over 300 times in the year 2019. And that was prior to the pandemic, where you would dial 911, and there simply wasn't an ambulance available for you. And that was due to just normal operations. Now, eventually, somebody would come, and in an emergency, they would probably send a fire truck. But remember, this is you're getting a you're getting a medically trained fireman, not a paramedic, and those are two different standards. And as well, in the bottom line, you have to remember that most of these municipalities have some form of emergency operations center, following the IMS standard uh, that it that is throughout the industry, throughout the profession. And these emergency operations centers have distinctive roles and responsibilities that need to be filled. And for a lot of organizations, it's exceptionally difficult to get a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth shift available to come into those EOCs from other organizations within the city. So you can see when we're talking about something other than a localized incident, you're talking an exceptional draw on the local resources, which can be overcome by regional resources, assuming that the rest of the region is not affected. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Over December and January 1998 to 99, there was a major ice storm in Ontario, in the northeastern corner of Ontario and into Quebec. And you saw power outages in some places for up to 14 to 21 days to the point where they had to bring in uh, diesel locomotive engines to park them in the city on the railroad tracks to use them as generators. Um, and you had significant disruptions. Now, that was well handled for the most part because the city of Ottawa was able to call on resources from all across the province of Ontario, which is Canada's most populous province, most prosperous province, and the economic engine. So there was all kinds of other resources that could be brought to bear to deal with that localized emergency. And even with all of those regional benefits and the and and our wonderful partners from the United States of America that came up to help us out we were in a situation where you were looking at up to you know 14 21 days for outlying areas for power to be reconnected during the middle of the winter and many people didn't have alternate sources of heat they had no secondary method within their residence to provide heat they started burning fires 24 hours a day in their chimney and i forget the number of homes in montreal alone that burned as a result of people constantly running fires in fireplaces that were not meant to be a continuous heating element inside the house so in september of 2003 Hurricane Juan hit Halifax, Nova Scotia, my home city. Four were killed and approximately $200 million damage was done. Now, in some cases, again, in the rural and the outlying areas, there were two to three weeks before the power was completely hooked up. And that was with all of Atlantic Canada coming to help our brothers and sisters 
from Maine and northeastern states of the United States, the deployment of the Canadian military assets out of Canadian Forces Base Gagetown in New Brunswick, and the Canadian Navy's East Coast Fleet. And we only got it to that point because of a Herculean effort of a massive amount of people. But the most prominent one, and in the scholarly world of disaster and emergency management, I would challenge anyone out there to say there is no more studied event than the 2005 August hurricane Katrina that hit New Orleans, Louisiana, and the Gulf Coast of the United States of America. It left 1,800 people dead and over $125 billion in collective damages. Now you think about the fact that to this day there are parishes that have never been rebuilt after that hurricane went through. That the displaced, the internally displaced persons uh, still many, many cultures and families have not returned to Louisiana. Entire neighborhoods and parishes were gentrified as a result when they were brought back because they were largely rental accommodations. The entire school system changed and massive st societal structural changes happened. Not to mention the hopes and dreams of tens of thousands of small businesses that were crushed by a single storm. Now you can say, for, you know, the, the, this is not about whether George Bush uh, did the right things as the president of the United States. This is saying that these are just a couple of prime examples of a myriad of disasters. Now, in Canada, Public Safety Canada has a database of the Canadian called the Canadian Disaster Database. It is reasonably well informed. I wouldn't call it the be all to end all of Canadian, but there's a more important one called EMAT, and it is housed by an American university, and it has all of the details back as far as recorded history goes of all of the major significant calamitous events to hit human species and the requisite death toll and damages. And if you go look at EMAT database, you will see the length and the extent of the exposure of the human race to natural hazards. And we have to understand that when these calamitous hit. I mean, 80% of Canadians live in urban and suburban areas, and that's largely who we speak to on this podcast. And you think about that these societies are run based upon the, the societal sectors of critical infrastructure. And we've talked about that in our recent series, we concluded on using critical infrastructure as a methodology to create an, an individual emergency preparedness plan for you and your family. Now, societies are built and constructed on functioning critical infrastructure. Now, when these calamitous events occur and you have a failure of systems to restart or you have a considerable extended disruption of critical infrastructure is when you start getting into a period that will exceed your 72 hours and put you in a position where two things are occurring. One, your 72 hours has expired. And two, there is not a governmental aid system to replicate and replace the lost critical infrastructure that held up society. And you're in a situation where you have your local systems are 
breach their capacity to respond. And if you want to know a great idea of that, there's a fantastic meteorologist that worked for CBC Vancouver, uh, Joanna Wagstaff, and she did a podcast. It's still available. It's about five years old now. It's called Fault Lines. And it talks about, based upon her as a seismologist and a meteorologist, and her understanding of the response plans for the cas- potential Cascadia earthquake in British Columbia, and it lays out exactly what likely would happen in clear crystal detail saying, you're looking at 14 and, and, and at the best case scenario, 21 days before anybody gets down to your family level to offer assistance. Now, centers may open up for you to come to, but for anybody to come to you, it could be as much as three weeks or longer in a significant event where you are largely going to be on your own. And that's the point of considering past 72 is that the idea of the 72 hours, uh, as we've talked about before on this podcast, is based on the theoretical idea that within 72 hours, governmental systems will be able to unscrew themselves and get themselves back in order and organize a collective response to aid the citizens. So the ideas of a 72-hour kit is that first 72 hours, when everybody on the ground is trying to figure out what is going on and what they're supposed to do next, you can self-sustain your family and whoever you're responsible for in order not to be a burden to emergency services. Because you remember, every person that's called out to help an emergency is not trying to put that critical infrastructure back into place. So if the water system goes down and the water department has to distribute bottled water to everybody, every set of hands that are distributing bottled water are not back working and putting that critical infrastructure back in place. So therefore, you need to think outside of your 72-hour ideas. Now, there's two key areas that we want to talk about today. One is community support. Now, we've talked on this podcast before, and and most of my personal research into emergency management is on the community support, community services, and generating what we refer to as social capital. So these are the bonds that you have with people who part of your groups that you're a membership of, faith communities, uh, coordination amongst neighbors. Who do you know in the area and how can you assist your neighbors? Like, do you know your neighbors? Do you know their needs and requirements in an emergency? Can you provide assistance? Can you ask them for assistance? You know, in a group of, if you had 12 homes on a cul-de-sac and you all put your heads together, you could probably figure your way through any problems, even without any kits of any kind. And that's why in my studies of emergency preparedness, the first thing I always tell people to do before you do anything is go meet your neighbor. It is largely the most important and critical thing that you can do in emergency preparedness is build that community of people that you can rely upon. Now, if you're a member of an active faith group, you already have that. If you're a member of a, you know, a local community association, a local gardening group, uh, even a Tai Chi class that meets on the sports field. Those are all social bonds that bring people together and things that you're going to be able to utilize in times of emergency. And the second thing is your preparations. Now, we've done the series on critical infrastructure. If you want to go back, if you know about it, great. If you want to go back and look at it, 
We ask people when you're doing an individual emergency preparedness plan to look at your family, its makeup, the needs, requirements for everybody. What does that look like for you? And then think logically about a time frame that you would feel comfortable becoming prepared for. Now, that generally requires you to have a bit of understanding of the hazards in your area. So are you prone to hurricanes? Do you live on a coast? Do you live on a fault line? Do you live in a floodplain? Um, do you live in an area that gets potential ice storms? Things like that. And then you sit down and say, okay, really, how long do I want to be prepared for? And everybody just says, oh, well, for as long as necessary. But if you don't actually define it, and put some frames around it, then you'll never actually get there. And saying that you'd love to be prepared for two years, if you've ever seen what two years of freeze-dried food looks like in your basement and the second mortgage you'll need for that, that is largely not what we're talking about. We're talking, do you want to be prepared for 14 or 21 days? When I deal with clients on the side or when I'm, taught, when I'm giving presentations to community groups, I like to say 21 days, three weeks, if everybody thought about being prepared for three weeks to live without utilities in your home, then you start to think about all of the things that you may need. So what do you think about time your preps are after? So if you've thought about, hey, listen, 21 days is good for me and my family. My question for you is that's great. And that's probably the, the best marker in a modern developed society. That's the one that I used for the first year and a half that I did preparedness. Um, what happens when the 22nd day? I mean, it's an honest question you got to ask yourself. And not like saying go into a whole nother planning cycle, but just think yourself 21 days. And I'll give you a prime example. I had a very good friend of mine and uh, she said, uh, no, she's not doing more than three days. And I was trying to persuade her, giving her a little idea about the, no, she said, no, 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 you don't understand. She said, I'm going to my uncle's farm after three days. If society doesn't, put itself back upright in three days. I'm getting in my car and I'm going to my uncle's farm where he lives on a farm. So self-sustaining wood stove, all kinds of food, canned food, all this other stuff. So in, so in her case, her situation was well thought out. She didn't need more than three days because after three days, she was grabbing a bunch of stuff and she was getting out of town and going to her uncle's farm. So maybe three days is perfectly fine. That's the idea of thinking about what happens. So I'll give you in my case, my case right now, I live in a townhouse development in the city of Ottawa and I have 60 days. That's the time that I've put, because the way I look at it is if, if society has not righted itself after 60 days, now you're looking at an extended collapse of law and order. You're looking at an extended collapse of governance and you're looking at a lot of things potentially occurring that I don't want to be a part of. So at 60 days, is when I pack up what's left, put my spare fuel into my car because I keep a couple jerry cans of spare gasoline, nothing special, just two extra tank loads and head off to a destination that's been predetermined. So I have 60 days because I think 60 days is enough. That'll probably give me a buffer. So if the event causes a 30-day disruption and then it, you know, it, things come back on, but they're all messed up for the first week or two of, of coming back on. I'm still living off my preps and I'm okay. I don't have to worry about all the messiness until people figure out what's going on. It's kind of like when we have lockdowns, out of lockdowns, into lockdowns, out of lockdowns, 
People are like, do I buy toilet paper? Don't I? Do I buy this? Do I buy that? Like they're all over the place and you may hit one of those mob days. And so the idea of having preps a little bit longer than you think is a great idea. So I want to leave you with a scenario and this is the most likely long-term one. And that's the scenario is based on a loss of utilities. So a failure of the electricity grid for an extended period of time. Now, remember, we, we worry about disaster impact reduction on this podcast, not disaster risk reduction. So I'm not concerned what knocked the power grid out. I'm talking about the power grid going down and it not coming back for 30 days, 45 days. What would your community look like? And I'm not talking the horror shows on the blackout movies where people are knocking each other in the head with canned foods and rioting in the street. I'm talking about the power going out and you having to self-sustain yourself for a period of time of that length with no power. What does that look like in your community, where you live now, your friends, your family, any preparedness plans that you've thought of? What does that look like if that power goes out right now and it doesn't come on for 30 days? How much of a challenge is that going to be for you to manage? What would you do when the lights didn't come back on, right? So what's that world look like for you? And so that's the thinking part. And the reason we use power is because of the 10 sets of critical infrastructure, all 10 of them rely power itself, but the other nine rely on power. Every single system of critical infrastructure that holds up modern society requires electrical power to run. Now, yes, they all have backup generators in the healthcare system and, you know, backup generators at most of the principal cell towers in town or 72 hour battery backup. But I'm talking long term, all of these collective systems require electrical energy to run. So what happens beyond 72 when the power doesn't come back on? So sit down, crack your favorite beverage and think about it for a second. What does that look like in your community? Right now, this time of year, it's warming up for most places. You know, we're not going back down below zero again, likely here where I live for six or seven months. So we're not going to freeze to death. Our pipes aren't going to freeze. So, but what does that look like in your world? Maybe you're somebody who has two chest freezers worth of half of a cow or the, you know, a hundred fish that you got fishing or whatever it is. And this is your frozen food supply and your freezers are going to, thaw out on you and how what does that world look like so but when you think about it the lights are the symbolic of modern society breaking down and if you if you think a little philosophical about it street lights i don't know if you grew up in the generation i did where you were sent home uh, you went home when the street lights came on as a matter of uh, a matter of principle or a matter of rule but lights coming on they give us warmth. They give us a sense of security, a sense of purpose. You know, you get up in the morning, you let you turn the light on, you flick the light on your coffee machine. All of these things are signals of a modern running society. Now, there are those out there who want to live off grid in the yurts, and I think that's pretty cool, actually. It's, but it's not my gig. It's some other people's gig. And if that's your thing, that's great. But for the rest of us who want to live in our modern society and carry on life, we're all tied intimately to the power grid and to our critical infrastructure. 
So think about that beyond the first 72. What does your world look like when the lights don't come back on? What does your community look like? Have you made the necessary connections with your neighbors to set up and be able to know that the people across the street are somebody you can knock on their door on day six and say, I didn't plan properly. I'm out of sugar. Or do you have any D cells? Cause like nobody uses D cell batteries anymore or whatever the situation is that you reach out to folks. Do you have that set up? Do you have that community or are you and your family largely on your own? And if you are, I would strongly suggest you followed my advice and do the most important thing in emergency preparedness. Go out and meet your neighbor. So hopefully that was helpful for you and it gives you a little bit of thought in the bonnet about what happens when the lights don't come back on. Thanks very much for joining us this week on Inside My Canoe Head. Drop us a line at jeff at preparednesslabs.ca. All your comments, good, bad, indifferent, or otherwise, are welcome. Suggestions on upcoming episodes. And do me a favor, tell a friend about the podcast. And I simply say that because the last two episodes haven't been doing that well. We got about half of the downloads in the last two episodes, and I I think I might be losing steam or something. So if there's a topic out there that you would love to hear about, uh, drop me a line. I'm going to get back on. I know the, the YouTube channel's a bit ridiculously hilariously behind everything else but uh you know i'm like all the rest of you in this world we're all trying to juggle so many things so i say to you my friends take care of your mental health stay safe wear a mask and we'll see you next week